Well, you know, this season uh, leading up to the election has been quite divisive in our land, and that's why I chose to take three weeks and look at how we as citizens of heaven and yet citizens of this kingdom are to live. Uh, We looked last week at how we live before God. So in Psalm 146, we see that our hope is to be in the God of Jacob and not to be trusting in princes. Uh, This week, we're going to look at the Peter passage and how we are to be, uh, while citizens of heaven, what is our responsibility to the state? And then next week, we'll look at how the church is to exist in such a divisive climate. But today, it's, it's, it's how do we, how are we good citizens? I mean, Peter answers this question well. You know, in the letter that Peter wrote to the church, he's reminding them at the beginning uh, that they've been born again to a living hope, that they've been redeemed, they've been purchased, they've been delivered. They've been adopted by God. Now they're citizens of heaven. This is a unique identity. They're citizens of heaven. And so the question was naturally asked, well, do we have responsibilities on earth? I mean, if God is our true and heavenly king, do we really need to honor an earthly temporal king? What is the responsibility that the Christian has to the state? How do God's people live in God's world under human governments? That's kind of the, that's the question today. What does it mean for you and I to be good citizens while having a membership in heaven and yet while still being in the flesh? So the passage that Rachel read gives us, I think, at least three points to ponder. And the first point in being a good citizen is that we do obey the government. I think that's clear. If you look in your text at verse 13, be subject to governing authorities. Be subject, he says, to every human institution. Now, that, what he's saying there, and that's awful broad, because every human institution, you have the family, you have the church, you have the government, you have business, you have education, He's saying be subject that our citizenry is meted out through obedience and submission to these human institutions. Now, Peter doesn't wait long to drive, and he kind of zeroes in on the role of the government, right? He speaks about the emperors as supreme. He's saying that you're supposed to be subject to the emperors. Now, we would kind of miss the point here. Peter is really, you know, in this culture at this time, uh, to submit to the emperor or to Uh, you know, the emperor would have been seen at least as partially divine. And and so there would be this emperor worship. Now, he's not speaking to that. He's saying be subject or be obedient to the laws of the emperor. And he's also talking about these governors. And that word for governor is a bit broader than just what we think of as a governor. It did include the governor. It also included proconsuls and even elected officials who collected revenue. So this idea of, he's saying, be subject to those who are in governance over you from the emperor to the one collecting taxes. And the, and the reason that we're called to be subject to them is God's instituted them. God has put them forth. In fact, Peter doesn't give the detail that Paul gives in Romans 13 about the role of the government, but he does kind of allude to it in saying that they're given right to punish the wrongdoer and to commend the one that does well. I mean, the government, the purpose of government is simply to promote justice and order in society. I mean, they are to prevent chaos from coming into our land. 
you know, in terms of foreign powers or to prevent chaos from erupting within our land, anarchy, they are to punish those who do wrong and they are to commend those who do, who do right. They're really meant to, prevent, to provide um, a society that is ordered and just that God's creation might flourish and thrive. It's kind of a little, little mini theology of government. They're not to do everything. It's a limited role that they're to play for creation to flourish. Now, that's the call, to be subject to all governing authorities. Now, what does it mean to be subject? That's a nasty little word in our language today. I mean, it tends to have the weight. It's been hijacked, in my opinion. It's seen as subjugation. It's seen as enslavement. It's seen as dehumanizing, devaluing. Well, Peter actually liked the word. He used it quite a bit in this letter. And the idea of submission in Scripture is really a yielding, a giving way. It was often used in military contexts where you would be respecting someone over you, a position of authority. And, and, and there's an implication of obedience. There's an expectation of obedience that we're to be subject. Now, uh, Peter, in writing this, I want to make sure you know, he, he doesn't make this command, this role, this being a good citizen is to be subject, he doesn't make it negotiable on the type of governments that we have. It can only be a democracy or a monarchy. He, he doesn't say that. And, and he doesn't make it negotiable on the quality of the leader, that he's super godly or not so godly. I mean, Peter was well aware of the potential wickedness among the rulers that he may be calling us to submit to. I mean, he, he knew Old Testament history, Nebuchadnezzar, Pharaoh. He even knew the people that he was writing to were suffering under state persecution in chapter 1 and 3 and 4. In fact, he was probably writing in the shadow of Nero, the emperor of Rome, who would ultimately execute both Peter and Paul. And, and, and you know in his mind had to be Jesus' own sufferings underneath Roman and Jewish authorities. And yet you see no rancor, no bitterness, no anger. And what you don't see is fear. There's no fear. He says, be subject to them. You can be subject to them. Of course, in all of us right now, we're thinking, well, how can this be? You know, why would he do this? But notice that little phrase he has in 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake. For the Lord's sake. Now, this Greek word in the New Testament is usually attributed to Jesus. For Jesus' sake. Your honor and your reverence for all that he is and all that the, the gospel has done for us. That it's for his sake that we're to be subject to these authorities. Uh, to be his sake. In other words, it's recognizing that he, according to Ephesians 1, is seated at the right hand of God, far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion for the church. That, that, that he exists. He institutes authority. He, he's over authority. That's why he says it's God's will that we do this. It, it, it's not a mindless submission. It's a faith-filled submission. Because we so trust in his greatness and glory and sovereignty that yes, we can submit to those that he has put there. 
So the, the first role of being a good citizen, having a, a membership in heaven, a citizenship in heaven, and yet a citizenship here, is yes, we obey those who have been placed over us for his sake. We don't do it to avoid trouble. We don't do it to fit in. We don't do it so that things go easier for us. We do it for his sake. So we want to consciously think when it's difficult, I am doing this because of him. This is not really different than the woman being called to submit to the husband as unto the Lord. Many husbands are not acting in respectful ways. Paul knew that when he wrote Ephesians 5, but he calls a woman to submit as unto the Lord, because God is even sovereign over a husband that may be at times rogue. You can trust me, he says. So that's the first role of the citizen. The citizenship in heaven and on earth is that we're subject to governing authorities. Now, now how does this play out in life? I mean, let's take this to the street for just a minute. What's it mean for you tomorrow when you pick up the paper and make it uber frustrated over things. What what do you do? Well, first I would say, let's value the government. Let's value the government. Let's be thankful for them. Are you grateful? Now, I I, I say this, I don't seek to defend or I don't seek to deny the rogue authoritarianism that that can take place in many human institutions, including the government. I'm not saying that you haven't experienced, even suffered under bad authority structures in different institutions, including the government. I'm just saying that the existence of bad authority doesn't displace the need that we have for good authority, right authority. And and we can be thankful for our government. You know, traveling, just some anecdotal evidence, you know, I'd gone through the Vienna airport when Carol and I lived in Austria. We went through it many, many times. It was well run, it was clean, it was safe, things were on time, it was a nice experience. I've been I've also been to the Port-au-Prince airport many times and flown through the... It's not that. There's a big difference. Now, the Haitian government doesn't have perhaps the money and the support and the structure and things that it needs, but but there's there's a simple example of good government is for us. We want to be thankful. You know, when you consider this country, if you're if you have a kitchen fire you would not hesitate to pick up the phone and call the fire department. And you would be absolutely flabbergasted if they never showed. You would be aghast. You expect them to. And you expect them to within minutes. The police taking, taking drunk drivers off the road and incarcerating criminals, our military. You know, there's much, much that we can value and be thankful. Much of the rhetoric from the Christian is very derogatory towards government. Let me tell you, if you think it's that bad, go to a third world country. Just do it for a month. And don't take a lot of money with you so you can live like everybody else there. And, and it, we want to be thankful. This doesn't mean that there aren't bad elements within the different levels of society and, and government and other human institutions. I, I know there is. As there is in every business community, as there is in every other form of community, sin has its place everywhere. But can we be grateful? Can we be thankful to God? Can we thank God for the government that he has given us? Can we praise him for that? Even though it may not be in accordance with every single thing you think you need or want. Secondly, uh, let's also allow our faith to integrate into politics. 
You know, the thing I was taught at a young age, keep religion, keep politics separate. It's nitro and glycerin. When they come together, you have a problem. And yet the text shows us that God's very much in government. He has instituted government, right? I mean, Genesis chapter 1, what does God do? He creates a man and a woman. He calls them to govern and lead. He calls them to governance. What happens when governing goes rogue when they sin against God? Well, then you have crime. You've got murder in chapter 4. You've got rebellion in 6, all the way through 11. But God is committed to his people. He gives the promise to Abraham in Genesis 12. And from Abraham, he draws a people. What does he do with the people? He gives them law. He gives them law to draw them to himself, the Ten Commandments. And then, of course, they do not submit to the law. Then they get drawn into exile, but from that promise to Abraham was coming a king, a perfect king, who would have a perfect government. In Isaiah 9, 6, this government will rest upon Jesus Christ, who is going to be the perfect king, the king that we long for. So we want our faith to integrate and influence our understanding of politics. I don't want the church to marry the state. It never works well that way. When, when the church is given the sword, Bad things happen. We have plenty of history with it. You see that kind of event with Islam even now. No, the church is the conscience of the state. The church is eternal. The state is not. But we are called that our faith in Christ and his word influences our politics. Now, where it goes from our understanding of politics, moving out into policy, there we need wisdom. There we need wisdom. I just don't want to create within our souls, we don't have a separation of God and state in our soul. I would also say, let's adorn the gospel by our obedience. Let's be people who pay taxes on time rightly. Let's be people who pray for our leaders, as we do here regularly. And Timothy tells us this. He says, first of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercession, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly, dignified in every way. Listen to what Paul says. He says, this is good, and this is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Why? Because he instituted them. So let's pray. Let's pay taxes. Let's vote with intelligence. Let's be involved in our communities and in our government. Listen, democracies don't work well with a bunch of spectators. We have to participate. And then I would also say this, and I pray you'll take this with the intention I have, which is good. Um, I'll try to say it that way. Um, we can adorn the gospel by the way we speak about the government. Vitriol, criticisms toward elected officials rarely help a situation. The, the, the criticisms of Obama from Republicans and now from President Trump by Democrats is very unhelpful. And, and, and I would say this with the talking heads that we listen to, uh, the, the political commentators, I, I would simply say less is more. Less is more. Uh, they, they tend to raise, whatever side of the aisle you're on, they tend to raise your blood pressure quickly. Uh, we want to be people that can speak about issues and deal with moral outrage in respectful ways. Listen to what Titus instructs. So Paul is writing to Titus, he's a pastor, 
kind of getting the churches in Crete in order. Here's his instruction to Titus. He says this, remind them. He's telling Titus as a pastor, tell your people this. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. Well, I mean, if that hit Facebook, you know, I think the thing would shut down. It, it would just go silent. <laughs> now, I, I realize, again, that there are actions and there are things said by elected officials that need to be addressed, no doubt. We just want to first have sorrow over those things before we climb on the moral outrage. We can quickly get on the self-righteousness wagon. And I think we probably should repent because those sins that we see are probably somewhere latent in us. So it would humble us first, and then we deal with it out of humility. We need to deal with these things, but do it in a respectful way. Now, of course, when I talk about this, this submission in obedience, it is a conditional submission, right? Peter said very clearly in Acts chapter 5 when he's told by the Jewish leadership not to preach. He says, we have to obey God and not man. There, there are those places where law will, the, the law of man will seek to trump the law of God, and we go with God on that every, every time. But those really are much more rare than I think we like to think. And then I would say this. One last thing we can do about, about being subject to governing authorities is can, let's make war with the anti-authoritarianism that's within our own heart. You know, can we make war with that strain of anti-authoritarianism? I mean, we were born rebels. Our first parents were. We are born rebels. And if you wonder about it, then just take when your, your four-year-old child or four-year-old grandchild asks for something, just say no. Just say no once or twice to the child. You will see clearly that there is within the heart of every human being. Don't tell me what to do. Or, or if you instruct somebody and you say, you really need to do this. Or, you know, I want you to do this right now. Whoa. I mean, you watch the back stiffen on people. You're telling me to do that? Are you doing, you know, it's this immediate response. There is that, there is that strain within us. Unless we're receiving the worship, of course. But if we're not, there is that strain of we don't want to be told what to do. This country was founded on a rebellion. We are comfortable with rebellion. And we want to make war with that because we're servants of God now. So the first point is simply this. In 13 and 14, you see it. Be subject for the Lord's sake to all these human institutions. We do it for the glory of Christ. All glory be to Christ, for the gospel has freed us. So that's the first point. Let me move to the second point. Uh, this is in 15. A, a, a Christian citizen seeks to do good for society. A Christian citizen seeks to do good for society. Look at what he says in 15. He says, for this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So there is some type of good thing that we're to do that tends to muzzle those that run contrary to the faith or that make accusations to the faith. So what is this doing good that he's speaking about? 
Well, I think clearly it's got to be 13 and 14, at least in part, right? Obeying leaders, speaking well of them. But there's more than that. I think it's more than personal acts of piety. I think it's more than straight law-abiding citizenry. I, I think he's speaking about a good work that is recognized across the board, Christian, non-Christian alike, as good. As some sacrificial act that you're doing for the benefit of society by which you do not expect to receive anything for. Whether it may be feeding the poor, it may be caring for the homeless, it may be taking care of the widow or the fatherless, it may be actively moving towards racial reconciliation, it could be actively moving in your community toward the betterment of something where you don't get an immediate profit from. These acts of of caring for the disenfranchised and the marginalized, these acts that everybody, whether believer or unbeliever, tends to look at it and say, you know what, that's a good thing to do. Because these acts tend to silence. Look at what it says. It says, by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Now, the, word, the idea of foolish people in Scripture, that's not like unintelligent. So the, the idea of a fool in Scripture can be a very intelligent person who just disregards God, right? Psalm 14.1, the fool says in his heart there is no God. He may be, we have very educated atheists. They're, they're, some of them are brilliant men and women. But they're fools in Scripture because they disregard the reality of God. And so what he's saying here is the works that we are to engage in as citizens are to benefit a society so that the fool, the educated disregarder of God, would say, yeah, that's that's a noble act. It's taking away their accusations against the faith. It's silencing their criticisms against the Christian faith. It removes the ground of their argument. It prevents them from making a caricature of Christianity when we sacrifice ourselves for the benefit of society. It removes their argument. Now, I'm not trying to give a social gospel here. I'm not not trying to promote just a bunch of do-goodism. You know, from Jeremiah, and I'm sure that in Peter's mind, Jeremiah 29 was looming. He's the prophet of Israel. He's prophesying to the people. They're taken to Babylon. They, They failed to walk in obedience to God. So Babylon was a nation to the north and to the west. They came in, they, and the way they conquered people is they came and dominated them, and then they transported them, put them in their own culture to assimilate them so they'd lose their own roots. That's how they dominated. And so they were taken back to Babylon. And here's what Jeremiah said to them. He says this, I do talk about a word of hope in a very dark day. He says, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, To all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, you build houses, you live in them, you plant gardens, you eat their produce, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray for the Lord on their behalf. And Peter's mind, in the very second verse of his book, what does he call us? Exiles. We're exiles, why? Because we have a citizenship in heaven. And yet we're living here. We're waiting for the new heavens and the new earth. We're longing for those, but we're exiles here. So we're to do good for the city, for the benefit. We're to pray for the benefit of the city. This is what he's calling us to do. You know, uh, last week we talked about, um, in Psalm 146, about this king that was coming. And we saw the environment of the king's reign. Remember, 
and speaking about the king that, was, that will come, and, and the nature of the reign was this. Remember all those divine acts that, that God will bring justice to the oppressed? He will um, he'll feed the hungry. He'll free the prisoner. He'll heal the blind. He'll uh, lift up the downtrodden. He'll watch over the sojourner. He'll uphold the widow and the fatherless. Those are the marks of the kingdom that he's bringing. And we saw how Jesus Christ in his, in his inaugural reign on this earth did all those things. We who are looking for his kingdom to come in its fullness now are called to display presently that kingdom. That's what his people are called to do. And so you see the same kind of language. Do good in silencing the foolishness of others. Why? How? As we benefit society. That we're called to do, each of us are called to engage in these things. Now, our church has a few decent ministries already. I mean, we have Cedar Point. Cedar Point, as you know, is an apartment complex off of Falls. Every Wednesday, we're there. We're tutoring. There's probably more than a dozen ethnic groups there. We're tutoring. We're giving summer camps, teaching them how to swim, trying to meet with people, meet material needs. Why is this important? Well, let me tell you, there's a lot of Muslims in that community. And so some of our people are there tutoring them in math and English and science every week. It's hard for that Muslim to grow up thinking Christianity is a bunch of fakeries when the same person has come and taught me so that I got a B in math now instead of failing. It's hard to criticize the faith when one exhibits such sacrificial care for the benefit of someone other than themselves. Or we come down here to Fox Road Elementary, Every quarter, we ask people, we're going to take breakfast to all the teachers, and we're going to clean up the schoolyard. There's no benefit to us. Many of our kids don't even go there. But, But here's the point. It's hard for that teacher who's antagonistic to the Christian faith. Maybe she's been hurt by it. Maybe legitimate hurt she has. It's hard for her now to criticize the Christian faith when people keep feeding her. It's hard to hate people that love you. It's hard to hate people who serve you. It's hard to dismiss the faith of people who continue to sacrifice for you. Or Cura. Cura is a pregnancy clinic uh, that we serve. We do that 4,000 steps every, um, every spring with them. We try to raise money to help them. Not just the protection of the unborn. That's vitally important to us. But the protection of the mother is as well. The caring for the mother. We have a small group who's going to take one of the mothers on just to help them. And and you can do that through this organization. Your small group or you as a family can begin to minister to these people. Now, maybe they've been brought up in a horrible understanding of the Christian faith, and yet we as a Christian community continue to sacrifice for them. What What then do they begin to think about Jesus Christ and his people? It removes the ability of them to accuse our faith of being either false or foolish or weak. So the second role that we have of being a citizen of heaven and a citizen of this earth is first we are subject to governing authorities for his glorious sake, and then we want to seek to do well in the community. Ask yourself, who do you know? Widow, fatherless, imprisoned, weak, broken, suffering, poor financial health. Ask God, give me one person that I will move. All of us should have at least one person that we're seeking their benefit, not 
I, God's, a, God's so gracious. I mean, in our economy, we'll end up feeling great. But, but, but the reality is, we want to enhance his name, not ours. We want his name to be made great, not ours. Okay, the third point that I make, and it's not super clear, but let me try to explain it, would be that, that a, a Christian citizen is seeking to maintain strong relationships in every sphere of his life. A Christian citizen is seeking to maintain these good, strong relationships. Let me, let me try to explain how I see that in this text. Look in 16, he says, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. So, so here, Peter's, Peter's continuing this idea of submission to government, right? In fact, the word live is kind of implied. It's not really there. It could be submit as free. There's kind of a paradox here, I think. You know, here he tells us to be in submission, and then he says, oh, by the way, you're free. Well, people that tend to be in subjugation don't see themselves as normally free. But Peter does. Why? Well, it's that it, it, Martin Luther kind of made the paradox this way. He says, a Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. A Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. It, it, we, we live in two universes. We have two citizenships. So we're both free, and yet we're willing to submit ourselves. And this is the key. Our submission is not restrictive and it's not oppressive. We are free in Christ. And that this chapter 2, 13 to 17, really on through chapter 3, verse 7, it's all built upon chapter 1. And in chapter 1, we've been born again. We are now free. Particularly in verses 17 and 18, we've been purchased by Christ, we've been adopted by God, we've been delivered from our futile old ways of living. Jesus Christ now is our judge, he now is our king, he now is our ruler. We are free, and what he's saying is use your freedom not to cover for sin toward anarchy or towards self-pleasure, use your freedom to serve, use your freedom to submit. Use your freedom for the benefit of society. Use your freedom to develop strong relationships with people, which is, I think, what he's getting to in verse 17. Having good relationships. Look at 17. There's these four imperatives. If you looked at five commentaries that explain it in five ways, it's kind of confusing. He just strings these commands there. But this is the way we use our freedom in terms of how we engage with people. Notice the first thing he says. He says, honor everyone. Wow. Okay, I mean, there's, it's, it's hard to pull a slice out of that. Honor everyone. He's saying that we as Christians, as free men and women in Christ, we can honor everyone. We can, we can be respectful to all people. Why? Because all people are made in the image of God. This is an act of worship to God. We're recognizing that every single individual is made in the image of God and therefore has value. And therefore, we are to extend dignity to. This doesn't mean we agree with everyone. It doesn't mean we follow all their philosophies of life. But we can at least extend honor and dignity to them. Now, this is hard. We, we struggle with ethnocentrism. It's a fancy word for saying our ethnicity, our culture, our style is the best. So if you see a woman go by with a headscarf on covering herself, what do you think? Or if a car comes down the road, it's got shiny wheels and loud music coming out of it. What do you think? When people make these racist comments, 
do you laugh along with it? Or do we condemn it because that person has been made in the image of God? And Peter says, in a context of great persecution, you can honor everyone. By God's grace and for his glory, you can. What judgment wells up within us? It does me, I'll tell you right now. And when it wells up, I want to cut it down. I want to rip it out by its root. We want to make war with that. We don't want that to have a place in our conversation and in our minds because we won't honor people. And we'll be looking down at people. C.S. Lewis says, we're looking down on people that in the next life you may want to worship them. So glorious will they be. So, so let's be mindful. Honor everyone. But then look what he says next. He says, love the brotherhood. He doesn't say honor the brotherhood. He says, love them. That peculiar affection for people. And, and I, when he says love the brotherhood, he's talking about the brothers and sisters in Christ. I don't think he's talking about some abstract love. Oh, I just love people. No, it's love in the community where it's hardest because we all know each other. And if we've been together for a while, we know each other's quirks. And, and, and we can just rub each other the wrong way so quickly. Now, I'm going to speak more about this next week because this to me is huge. In a divisive community, the church can, must be united. Jesus said, all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. What a condition. If we love, a concrete love. You know, in 1 John 4, he says that the invisible God is made manifest or made visible. By the way, we forgive one another, the way we move towards each other, the way we accept one another, the sacrifices we make to one another. Love, just, just ask yourself, even this afternoon, say, how would people in my church know that I love them? Ask yourself the question. You may have ten reasons come right off the tip of your tongue. I, I, I pray so. But, but how would they know it? You know? What efforts do I make towards loving one another? Because Peter's saying, in this context, as good citizens, love the brotherhood. And, and then look what he says next. He says, fear God. Th- this is a heavy one. Fear God. Um, We're not to fear the king. We're going to honor the king in just a minute, but we don't fear the king. We don't fear the king because God's the king. And and, and God is uh, full of sovereign glory. We fear him. Jesus Christ said the same thing. Don't fear the one who can kill the body. You fear the one who can kill the body and the soul. You know, it's an interesting thing, especially the rhetoric from this post-Trump victory. Uh, People are in fear. We're a fearful nation now. I'm sure that they genuinely feel it. I have no doubt about it. Uh, but we're a fearful nation. We're fearful over cancer. We're fearful over Trump. We're fearful over Obama. We're fearful over terrorists. We're fearful over financial meltdown. We're fearful over so many different things. Everybody's fearing everything, but nobody's fearing God. Do, you, you, does any, do we fear God? He says, fear God. There is a reason to fear God. And, and not a fright. For the Christian, there's this affectionate reverence that we ought to have for him. He's been so kind to us. He's so gracious. He's given us a son who would bear our sin, our shame, our guilt, and, and, and make peace with God through his own blood that we might call God Father. And this is a gift to us that we receive by faith, by faith with joy. And that's why rejection of Christ as king is so horrible. But because he's come to die 
And, and we say, no, thank you. So if you're not a Christian, I would just ask you to consider the overture of God to us in Christ, a gracious offer of reconciliation through his son. He bore the cost to bring us to himself. Fear God. Something that, do we fear God? So when you read the paper and you're struck by some new policy or some new event, when, when fear begins to rise in you, and I would admit that's a natural initial response, the Christian just goes at the truth of Scripture to the response of our heart and says, I'm not going to listen to myself. I'm going to allow the word of God now to change the tenor of my feelings towards the situation. I'm going to fear God on this one. You know, he, st- he sits in the heavens and he does as he pleases. That's the one that has called us his children. How do you think about God as a father? We, there's that affectionate reverence. And then last, he says, honor the king. And the reason he says honor the king, I think, is to bookend the way he starts out with, you know, be subject to emperors. He's saying honor the king. We don't fear the king, but we do honor him. Now, many kings are not really honorable in many, in many ways. But we honor the king because God has appointed him to be the king. You know, Daniel reminds us, the book of Daniel, he says, no, he sets kings up and he sets kings down. I mean, God is fully in control of bringing his creation uh, to the point that he will have it be. He will establish his purposes and his plans are established and they'll be brought to completion. So because he has appointed that person as a king, that we can honor the king. Again, there is the dilemma we have of how do we express moral outrage over behaviors that are ungodly. There is a role for the church to do that, and it often will bring persecution to us, but we are called to do it with respect, and we're called to do it for God's sake and done in a way that would honor him. So so here we see in this little text Three main planks, at least, that I've drawn out. First, that a Christian citizen is going to be subject to governments. And we talked about ways that you can do that, right? Valuing the government. We can be adorning the gospel. We can have our faith integrate our politics. And we can make war with that strain of anti-authoritarianism within us. And then secondly, to be a good citizen is to be actively engaged in the benefit of society. That we are moving towards the marginalized, just like God does in Psalm 146. Just as Jesus did in his earthly ministry, now his followers are moving out for the benefit of others. So do we have those people in our life that are actively receiving from us means of grace, displaying and enhancing God's name? And then thirdly, thirdly, are we walking in relationships? So You know, he says, honor everyone. Look at your social network. He says, love the brotherhood. Look at your network within the church. Fear God, your spiritual relationship with him. And honor the king, your political relationships. Are those relationships, are you living as a free man or woman, exercising your freedom as a servant of God for their betterment? So let me stop at this point, and we'll have a few moments of silence now where where. I would ask you just to take your own soul to task, as one author says. Um, and, and one other thing, before, before we pray, uh, I just remember this. I love, sometimes within Christian communities, there can be kind of a doomsday attitude. Well, what's it all matter? It's all going to end. And, and, and I was hearing that among some people, and, and kind of a, why rearrange the chairs on the Titanic kind of mentality. And uh, I, I was instructed by Martin Luther, he, who said, he was 
reported to, or purported to say these words. He said, uh, if I knew the end of the world was coming tomorrow, I'd go plant a tree. I, I'd stay engaged. I'd stay involved. In fact, there's a, a Jewish saying quite similar, and it goes this way. He says, if you have a sapling in your hand and they tell you that the Messiah has arrived, first plant the sapling and then go greet him. In other words, we want to be having our hands dirty all the way up until the end. Uh, we don't want to sit back. We want to be busy all the way to the end. Good citizenry because it honors our, our Father in heaven. So let's take a minute now. Perhaps you might be convicted. And I would just encourage you to repent. To ask God for that grace that is readily ours in his Son. Uh, if you're encouraged, then thank God for what we do have. Uh, if you need help in getting plugged into some person or some way to benefit society, as I've said, then ask God for wisdom. Come speak to the leadership of the church. Um, but let's take these minutes and just quiet our hearts before him, silently confess, speak to him, and then an elder is going to close us in just a minute. Thank you.